0: Thank you, thank you. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I, I've missed you. I have been gone for a couple of weeks. I was in Italy suffering for Jesus in Italy. Uh, every four years, our Association of Churches pulls all the lead pastors from every church and site around the world together uh, to seek God together, uh, clarify the vision for the next four years. Um, and to really build unity among the global diversity that is in our churches. So I was out there. I I roomed with Pastor Enrique. uh, He's our pastor over in uh, East L.A. That brother is a professional snorer. Uh, (laughs) Dude, he has a wide range. It's like a symphony orchestra. I mean, he's got that little, hee, hee, and then he'll just go all the way to the bear. I mean, you know. uh, I didn't sleep very much, but uh, he did. He slept great. Uh, I, I can I can testify to that. Italy is Italy is an amazing place. Um, I love the Italian people. Um, they speak so intensely, uh, and and every sentence is animated, and their hands are always doing this, or you know, they're just everything. They're all over the place. And as I heard them speak, I was just like I was yearning to speak Italian, so I could just join in on just the passion. That they, that they spoke with, right? I just wanted to get in there. It kind of made me wonder, like, do I have some Italian in me somewhere? I could just feel myself, you know? By the end of the trip, I was just sort of making a fool out of myself. I would just, the few words that I picked up, I would just sort of, excuse prego, arrivederci. And they'd be like, <laughs> I just, like, sorry, I just love your language, man. Uh, they live life with great passion. They're very kind people. The city of Rome is like an open museum. You sort of walk around and in random places you will see an ancient pillar, thousands of years old, or, or these structures that were built by the old emperor, um, uh, the Caesars, you know, the Roman Empire. In one contrast, amazing contrast, we went around the ancient Colosseum uh, where they would do the gladiator fights to the death and it is astounding to see a stadium as big as the Rose Bowl, but realize that this was built thousands of years ago with only human hands, no machinery, no equipment at all. Uh, and, and, and in that great Colosseum the emperors of rome the caesars they would they would display their power and their might that's why they built it the the colosseum was built so that when people who were conquered by rome these are people remember this is ancient and the you know no electricity these people would be living in these really little remote villages right all over the place and when they would be conquered sometimes they would bring these people on these long journeys into the city of rome so they could see the huge colosseum and just be in awe of the power and majesty of Caesar and Rome. But then right across the street from the Colosseum is this massive gardens, I mean massive gardens. We're talking like the size of like Griffith Park uh, in terms of how big it is. And this is where the Caesars would live and where they would host these massive parties to show off their wealth. Uh, There was elaborate water fountains uh, they had these large marble patios. Um, there were flowers and trees from all over the world. One Caesar named Nero was a particularly violent, sick-in-the-head, power-hungry tyrant. And in order to create even more fear and awe at his power, during these lavish garden parties at nighttime, since they had no electricity, he had his slaves build these stands all over his gardens, and then he would bring in the Christians the people who worship Jesus, he would tie them up on these stands all over the gardens, cover them in oils, and light them up. And they would slowly burn all night to give the party light so they could party all night long. I mean, just sick. And as I stood there in those gardens trying to picture the brothers and sisters in the faith burning, I thank God for their lives of worship. Because many of them, uh, it was documented, they would forgive the soldiers who lit them on fire before they died. Many would be singing and screaming praises to Jesus as they burned to death. And their worship of Jesus in the midst of being burned to death caused many others to become followers of Jesus. See, people in that ancient world, they had the same choice that we have today. To worship Caesar in all of his worldly power and wealth, the one whose power base is a coliseum and violence, or to worship Jesus, the one who is slaughtered and slain for our salvation, the one whose power base is a cross. So let's help each other choose Jesus today. Please stand if you're able to honor the reading of God's word. We are in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth." Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne And to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with us right now. Thank you that you've given us your word that has been breathed with your spirit, that your word that is alive. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take away every hindrance to being able to receive your word that you would take away apathy and distraction, that you would lock us into hearing your voice through your word to lead us into a worship of you that will change the way we live our lives. We love you, Jesus. Lead us. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. The book of Revelation is a complicated book to understand. It is filled with vivid imagery. And has lots of symbols that the ancient people, the first readers, would understand because they were all the symbols and pictures that they used. So before we dive into our, the, the, the focus text that I read, I want to give you a little background that is essential to understand what's going on in, in essentially chapters 4 and 5. First, this book is uh, a, it's written in a unique writing style of the ancient world called ap- apocalyptic literature. This this apocalyptic literature was especially used by ancient Jewish writers. You have to read it differently than you read other books of the Bible, other books that are historical documentation or poetry. The point of apocalyptic literature is to create intense, even exaggerated images to impact us. You see, it wants us to use our imaginations as we read or as we hear it. It wants us to try and picture all the things it is saying so that we are impacted not just on a mental level from learning new information, but on an emotional level. I, I think Italians would love this kind of writing personally, as I, what I've learned about Italians. Second, apocalyptic literature wants to help us understand what is going on in our present day reality in light of the unseen future reality that is coming. It also wants to help us understand what's going on in our present reality in light of the unseen, present spiritual reality that is all around us. Meaning this literature is trying to open a window into the spiritual dimension that we cannot see that will help us understand the things that we can see. Are you with me? Third, the book of Revelation, it uses a lot of numbers. But all of the numbers are symbols. They're not statistics. And so, none of the numbers are literal. They're all numbers that the ancient Jewish Christians would use symbolically. You see, the Apostle John is writing this letter. He has been banished to a prison colony, uh, Roman Empire. See, the Christians were growing because of their worship of Jesus and not Caesar, but, but Caesar didn't like that, so he was slaughtering Christians, using them to light up his parties. And then they found the leaders and they started martyring and killing the, the Peter, right, and, and, and these different leaders. But they started to realize that they'd kill a leader and all these new people would become Christians. So then they found John and they, instead of killing him, they banished him to a prison colony. So John now has all of his friends and all the brothers and sisters and all the churches that he's in charge of. So he's writing them this letter. He's got to write it in code because the Roman soldiers would screen the mail. So he's using all these numbers that the church would use to communicate truth. They're symbols. They're not literally statistics. So in our text, you will see the 24 elders around the throne of God. 24 is 12 plus 12. It is representing the entire people of God, all of the faithful. The 12 tribes of Israel that represent all the faithful people of God before Jesus. And the 12 apostles of Jesus that represent all the faithful folks that follow Jesus after the cross and resurrection. It's a symbol of representing all the people of God in the throne room. The last bit of teaching context is this book is not actually titled Revelation or revelations. The title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now remember, this book is written originally in the language of Greek. The Greek, and so it's translated from Greek. The Greek word for rebe- revelation is apocalypse. Somebody say apocalypse. apocalypse. Now you know from all your movies, you kind of shudder a little bit like, oh, apocalypse, right? See, we now think of apocalypse as like horrible war, end times, demonic invasion of our world, things like that. We have completely misused and abused the term apocalypse. When the ancient readers would hear the word apocalypse, they would get really excited. They would get super fired up because apocalypse simply means an unveiling. Apocalypse simply means seeing what you can't see. So if I put a big box here that was covered like in wrapping paper, and I began to open up the box, that's an apocalypse. You'd be like, yeah, what's in the box? Right? If we're sitting in front of a a traditional stage that has curtains, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, all of a sudden they start to open the curtains. That's an apocalypse. Unveiling. Revelation is the English translation. Revealing what we have not been able to see. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is telling us that this book is going to open up our eyes to realities of Jesus that we have not been able to see. Is that that's a good thing, right? Amen. Please use apocalypse differently and tell your friends. No, no, no. You want an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. In fact, the book starts with a jolt. John, one of the original 12 apostles in his old age, he's on this prison island. It's a horrible place. There's no prison rights, prisoner rights. He knows that he is going to die here. It's a prison colony. It's much worse than what even Brittany Griner is going through right now, right? And he enters into this time of prayer and worship of Jesus. And as he's praying and worshiping, all of a sudden he hears a trumpet sound, which in the ancient Jewish culture was either a call to war or a call to worship. Think about that for a second. Right there in the first chapter of the book, the trumpet blast gives you the main theme of the entire book, who will you worship? And your choice will determine whether you win the war or not. Who will you worship? John hears a trumpet blast and he turns around and there's Jesus. Jesus, his master and his teacher, the one that he walked with and lived with for three years, the one he leaned into during the Last Supper, but now the full glory of Jesus is being revealed to him. He is getting an apocalypse of Jesus, and he has seen things of Jesus that he has never seen, and it causes him to fall down in utter shock and worship. And so here's a nugget to take with you into this week. The presence of Jesus can transform a prison colony into a house of worship. The presence of Jesus can transform even a prison colony into a house of worship. Then chapters 1, 2, and 3 in this book, John is getting fresh apocalypse, fresh revelation. He's seeing things uh, about, uh, about all the different churches, the Christian churches that are around the Roman Empire. His vision is starting from the churches, from earth, from the Roman Empire, and he's getting to see up into heaven. But then everything changes in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then as I, John, looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before, the voice of Jesus, spoke to me like a trumpet blast. There's that trumpet calling John into worship and war again. This is intense, baby. Italians would love the book of Revelation. Let's go. The voice says to John, come up here. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So here's how what happened. Jesus, like Dr. Strange, opens a portal. He just, he, Jesus can open a portal anywhere, anytime and transport us into the dimension of heaven. John says, I looked and I saw a door open into heaven. That's the portal, baby, right there. Every time we worship together, every time we stop Every time we pause to pray to seek Jesus, that portal starts to open. The film that is between our dimension and the perfect dimension of heaven, it thins out. We start to feel the life of heaven. We start to hear the voice of God coming from that dimension into ours. But there are times when the entire portal just opens. John isn't the first, and he won't be the last. He sees an aspect of reality that he was blind to. And it affects how he understands his reality of living out his last days as a prisoner of a brutal and violent empire, right, who burns his brothers and sisters to light up large parties. He sees that there is a throne room to the universe. There is a command center to the universe, and he sees that there is a good God sitting on the throne. There is someone in charge. There is a greater power than Caesar, and there's a greater power than evil. Can I get an amen? Amen. But remember this. Up to chapter 4, what he sees is from earth into heaven. But now in chapter 4, he is told, come up here. And in the spirit of God, he's now in heaven. And from chapter 4 through chapter 22, the rest of the book, John is seeing things from heaven. He is able to see what is going on on earth from the perspective of heaven. He's looking at his life and his friends' lives from the throne room. He's looking at what Caesar is doing from the throne room. And it is this perspective that utterly changes his life. And it is this perspective that can change our lives. It is why we've got to be in the book Because the book is giving us the same sight so that we can see our earth, see our modern-day stuff through the lens of heaven. See, if we can interpret what is happening to us from the perspective of heaven, from God's perspective, everything changes. right? Listen to what he sees. This is in chapter 4 as we're getting to our focus text. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like Jasper and Carnelian. Our God does not have to ice himself up, y'all. He doesn't need to wear stones. He is. He is. It's just, his being is so brilliant. It's so pure. It just radiates the glow of gemstones. And the glow of an emerald circled like a throne. uh, Sorry, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. 24 thrones surround him and 24 elders sat on them. They were clothed in white and had gold crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like a crystal. Remember that image. Let your imagination go. Imagine the beauty and the power in this throne room scene. The most powerful forces of nature are emanating from this throne. Please understand this, church. You have not seen the fullness of God. God is more jaw-dropping, more amazing, more beautiful, more life-giving, more powerful than your imagination can conjure up right now. Life in Jesus is a life of growing revelation of the majesty of God. Those who endure in their faith their entire lives are going to see what no person can even imagine. God is greater than what you can imagine. Grow into more of his majesty. Pursue him. Gain more and more revelation as your life in him grows. The 80-year-old John is more in awe of God than the 30-year-old John was. And the 30-year-old John got to walk hand-in-hand, physically touching Jesus. And at 80, he's more in awe than he was at 30. Why are so many Christians always talking about the past? Why is their God more amazing in the first two years of following Jesus? Something is not right in our spiritual lives if the best of God is behind us. We are not meant to plateau. We are not meant to coast. Christianity isn't like learn, learn the basics of the faith and then cool, sit back and let's let the young people learn and catch up to us and we're just kind of coasting till heaven. No, there is more, more that God wants to reveal to us. Mm. And like our lives in Jesus, this text just keeps getting better. Watch this now. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is immediately before our focus text. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Sorry, right hand, my right. Here we go. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began, this is John, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the line of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Oh, this is so rich. John sees a scroll in the right hand of God, sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it has seven seals holding the scroll together. What is that scroll? That scroll seems like a big deal. Well, the ancient people, the first readers of this text, would totally understand. They lived in an empire with a king, right? Uh, A scroll in the king's hand was the king's decrees. It was his plans. It was his orders. The purposes of God are on that scroll. And did you notice the details? This scroll is completely filled up. There is no blank space. It's inside and outside. It means that there are no secrets. People can read it. And it also means it has the complete purposes of God. John realizes he, he has, he's in heaven, and he has seen God. He is realizing, oh, my gosh, reality is way different. This is who's in charge, not Caesar, and I see it. I see that scroll, and on that scroll, that's God's plan for defeating the devil. That's God's plan for eliminating poverty. That's God's plan for eliminating oppression. That's God's plan for bringing joy and unity and reconciliation and life to all of his people. It's his plan to save and redeem earth, right? There's no more death, no more sickness once that plan happens. This is all that we need on that scroll, but then an angel shouts, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to carry out God's plans and purposes to eliminate evil and save us? Crickets. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth can save us from evil and the pain that plagues us day in and day out. Nobody can carry out God's purposes. Nobody. Not Jeff Bezos. Not Elon Musk. Not Obama or Trump or Biden or Beyonce or LeBron. I mean, just roll through it. Neither can you. Neither can your family. Neither can every human being, if they were actually come together in unity, they cannot. And John weeps bitterly. He is suffering on a prison colony of one of the most violent and brutal empires that has ever existed. And his friends are getting torn up back in the cities. He is weeping because he sees the plan. He sees the salvation, but nobody is worthy or able to carry it out. But then, as he weeps, and here we come to our focus text today. He is told, stop weeping by a strong angel. Look. The lion has won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. John, uh, stop weeping. John, there is one. There is just one. There is one worthy. Look at the lion. John turns to look, and we are presented with the most visually conflictive imagery in all of the Bible. He's turning to look at a majestic and strong lion, and he sees a lamb as if slaughtered standing right there. Wait, what? Try to picture that with your imagination. In the middle of the most lavish and majestic throne room, with all these precious stones and colors, and strong angels and people singing, there is a slaughtered lamb, a lamb ripped open with blood all over him, blood uh, dripping down onto this sea of glass all over the place. It's like it's almost like grotesque. It's but yet it, it's slaughtered, but yet it's standing. It's alive. And all of a sudden, with the fate of our entire human existence on the line, the lamb, Jesus, walks up to the throne and takes the scroll out of God's hands, more dramatic than Captain America picking up Thor's hammer, the only one worthy, Jesus, can take that scroll. You and I, we'd be like, Ugh. Thor would be like, <laughs> Thanos, Ugh. Jesus is like, got it. Come on now. The entire cosmos of heaven starts worshiping Jesus, the lamb who subjected himself to the cross to a violent death in order to be the only one worthy to defeat evil and receive us broken people. A new song erupts in all of heaven. Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Can I get an amen for that? See, Jesus is the only one worthy because we were stuck in a hopeless prison camp of the devil, in the grip of the devil himself, and Jesus came to the camp and he paid the ransom for our lives. Right? How much is your life worth? How much is a life worth? How much is Mariana's life worth? Right? How much is Aaron's life worth? Can you actually put a price on that, right? You know know what Jesus did? He came up and he said, oh, Mariana needs this to free you. Fill up a canister of my blood. She's now mine. You can't touch her anymore. Oh, Aaron's cut right there in the camp. Let me just give some more blood. Here's a canister of my blood. Boom. Oh, you're you're, you're stuck by the devil? Nothing gets you out? My blood can. More blood. Canisters of blood and blood and blood and blood. And now we belong to him and not the devil. Your life is worth more than all the money that exists in this world. I mean, add it up. Elon Musk, Floyd Money Mayweather, Carlos Slim, Bill Gates. Put all that money together and God just laughs at it. It's like ants. It's ants. You can't buy anybody's life from the devil. But the blood of Jesus is sprayed all over the most precious gemstones of heaven because it's the most valuable commodity in all the universe. A drop of his blood is worth more than all the gold of this world, and he shed buckets of it to save you and you and you and me. Not only did he ransom us, but he made us a kingdom of priests to partner with him. I don't got time to break that down, but do you realize the worth of your life? Do you realize how valuable you are to the one who actually sits on the throne that has any real power? Do you realize how much he paid for your life? If you realize how much he paid for your life, you would get up tomorrow and you would live differently. You would look at yourself in the mirror and you'd say, you know, I am broken, but... The Lord has decided that I'm worth his blood. And I'm going to start living like a child of the king, of all kings. And I'm going to get rid of the lies of the puppet king who tells me that I'm kind of messed up. And I I can't get all that I want in life. And I I can't really get close to God because i got all these problems. You're worth more. If you knew the worth of you to God, you would break out in song like all of the heavens. At one point in verse 5, they sing, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This was the exact same chorus that the Roman Senate would shout when Caesar would walk into the Senate hall. Caesar, full of, I don't even want to say it. Do you see what John does? Who do you give this worship to? Who do you say has Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and blessing. Who do you give this to? Do those who have the praises of other people? Who have money, power, status, the trends? Or do you worship a slaughtered lamb? Jesus became the lion of the universe by being a lamb. When you get into the throne room of heaven, your entire perspective changes. You realize that actually the way up is down. True greatness is only achieved by sacrifice, not by selfish gain. True greatness has nothing to do with how many athletic games you win, but everything to do with how much you're going to sacrifice for the people on your team. True greatness has nothing to do with the money in your bank account, but everything to do with how much money you pour out for those who are in pain. The way up is down. The true greatness is achieved by sacrifice, not by selfish gain. It's when you love in ways that hurt, in ways that are anonymous and unseen, that you receive the glory of heaven. Greatness is achieved through servanthood. Greatness is achieved through worshiping Jesus as a lamb and taking the shots for it. The way up is down. Choose to worship Jesus. Choose to sacrificially love those God has put around you. And you will be part of moving God's plan to completion on this earth. We all need an apocalypse. We all need an unveiling, a revealing. We need to see. We need to be taken up to the throne room and see our lives and the events of our world from the place of the throne room. I want to break down three simple ways that you know that you are, you are seeing the unseen reality of heaven. Three ways that you know you are living in heavenly perspective. First, in front of the throne room was a sea, water, but it was like glass, like crystal. It was so still that it looked like glass. Nobody who stood on that water drowned. It was firm as crystal. The sea in the ancient world was the symbol of chaos, They didn't know what was going on under the sea. They had no technology to see it, and it was crazy. It would be still, and then it would have storms. It would kill people. They saw crazy animals surfacing and going back down. They thought that hell, that people in hell went down into the sea. But in the presence of God in the throne room, that sea is completely tamed like a perfect pet at the feet of Jesus. Not an ounce of movement or wave. When you see your chaos through the eyes of God, you will receive peace. God tames chaos so you can hope and not despair in the midst of your personal chaos that you're going through right now and in the midst of the chaos that is going on all around our world. As we stay in Jesus, as we stay with a heavenly perspective, we have peace and faith that the chaos will not own us, that the chaos is actually on a leash and God can tame it in a heartbeat. Second, the second way you know you are seen with the perspective of heaven is you sing. You sing to God. There is singing all the time going around the throne room. In the reality of realities, people sing. Learn the songs that worship Jesus. Learn the songs that declare the greatness of God. Music is the language of the soul, y'all. We all know that. It's why we turn on music when we're down. Music, is, it moves our soul. And when we sing about each other, when we sing about trivial things, we are not gaining perspective But when we sing to God, when we sing about God, our minds and our souls are anchored in reality. And when we find the songs of God just coming out of us unplanned, we know that we are living in the realities of heaven. If you can see the throne room, you sing. And that leads us to the last one, and I'll have the worship team come on up. The third way that you know that you're living in heavenly perspective is when you know that there is a 24-7 endless worship of God happening around the throne room. When you know that, you're always able to be strengthened. There is thousands upon thousands, you're unable to count them, people worshiping God around the throne room. Nobody can stop that. See, it means we actually never start or stop worship. See, when we come together and we worship God, all we are doing is simply joining into the worship that is always happening around the, uh, the throne room and the heavenly dimension. When we stop, they don't stop. It means that at any time, you can join the worship around the throne. It means, see, if you see that, if you can live in that, you will have a life-changing perspective. When you worship Jesus... Right? You enter into the heavenly worship of Jesus into his presence, and his presence can turn a prison colony into a house of worship. He can turn your workplace, your home, your neighborhood, the hospital, the prisons into worship. We can always enter in. Early this morning, I went into my little office and I said, I am not alone. And I began to sing to Jesus, and I just joined in with the chorus and the multitudes of the heavenly host that is singing. Every place is a portal into the unending worship. We simply enter in, enter out, enter in, enter out. There is about 50 of us from the U.S. that gathered in Italy, about 120-some of folks from all over the different types of world, and I got revelation all week long. I mean, I heard testimony after testimony and I realized things are not as they seem. Do not get sucked into the news, y'all. It's not all of reality. I heard testimony after testimony. I heard of our brothers and sisters who were in Poland There's a group of of folks that have died to themselves. They have given their life to Jesus. They said, we're going to live forever. And so they drive every day into Ukraine where the fighting is happening with missiles, flying, and bullets. And they're there to rescue soldiers, to pray for those on the verge of death, to help them into Jesus, to bring food, to pull them back, to bring notes from family in the name of Jesus. There are 500 to 1,500 people giving their lives to Jesus in Ukraine every single day right now. Minimum of 500, up to 1,500 in the biggest day. Their churches in Ukraine are exploding. One brother testified that there was 50 senior citizens, 50 of them all getting baptized together, giving their life to Jesus in Ukraine right now. I mean, I heard of what's going on in Myanmar there's a horrible coup, horrible violence. The economy is plummeting. Their money is just like paper now. There are more Buddhists coming to Jesus right now in the last year and a half than for the last 50, 60 decades combined. Because it's the Christians who are uh, bringing unity together from different churches, pooling their resources. They're feeding over 5,000 of the poorest of the poor every day. And people are like, why are you doing that? We're all in survival mode. It's Jesus. I mean, from Seattle to Afghanistan, I was given new sight. I was given new sight to see that Putin is not on the throne of this universe. The cartels do not sit on the throne of this universe. The Republican and Democratic party, they do not sit on the throne of this universe. The Chinese dictator, the North Korean dictator does not sit on the throne of our universe. They do not have ultimate say on the way that this world happens. The throne is occupied by Jesus and his followers. They have the ultimate say. Jesus is pouring his blood out for every tribe, nation, and language. About the third day. Sorry, baby, you're playing a long time. I appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, the third day of that conference, I didn't want to go. You can tell, you can ask folks around me. I tried to get out of the trip. I tried to get my wife to go. I've never been to Italy. I had no desire. I hate traveling. Uh, they wouldn't let me get out of it. I, my body is not a good traveling body. On the third day, I had not slept. The time changes completely different. So night is day, day is night. And so my body didn't like it. I was getting, I hit that insomnia place. New food does not do well with me. I had pain all over my stomach. I wasn't sleeping because of the time changing because Pastor Enrique snores like a savage animal. It's the third day. We have meetings 10 hours a day because they're like, hey, we paid you all to get here. We're going to get some work done. I'm on the third day of a meeting in the afternoon session. And they chose this afternoon session to just have all the department heads get up and give updates of how the organization is going to be flowing for the next three, four years. And I'm in the back of the room. I put myself in the back because I was just so exhausted. And I'm trying to stay up because I'm trying to make myself stay up so that the third night I can finally sleep. And I'm just doing this as they're talking about HR stuff. And I'm just like, doing this. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Then this lady gets up and she coordinates the prayer effort from around the world and she says, we're gonna be doing this and this. And then she's like, you know what? I think we should just pray right now. And in the back I'm like, no, I have no energy to pray. I just want to take a nap. So 200 people are praying, she prays real quick, and then it's done, I'm like, okay. And then one of the pastors gets up, I don't think we're supposed to stop, we gotta press in right now, I'm like, oh. And then some young, crazy person who lives in the Middle East, who's given their life to Jesus, just stands up and starts screaming to Jesus, and something in my soul is like, whoa! And I just knew in my brain, you're exhausted, you're in a lot of pain, just go to the front. Sometimes you just got to make your body, like, you, you, you know, you, don't, you have no energy to pray. Just go to the front and just catch it. You just, you just catch it today. I went to the front, and the next thing you know, I am on the ground. There is tears coming from the core of my being. God is just dealing with all the lies that have been in my head for three to four months. I am all of a sudden in my own version of the throne room. God is speaking to me of things that I just needed to hear from him. I am weeping with joy. There is no more pain in my body. It was like I was, it felt like time went by five minutes. When I finally came out of that place, it had been two and a half hours. I was on my back, didn't know how I got there. And I looked around and there was about 20 people doing the same thing in the room. It was already 7.30 and everybody was eating dinner. I was like, whoa. One time. I got called into the spirit of God, it changed everything. How I was doing, how I'm coming home. That is why we worship. It is why we worship to get that perspective. So come on and stand with me. I don't think it's extreme to say that things are getting worse around us. There is more suffering that is going to be coming to our world and to our city, but it's also not naive to say that God is coming at us in extreme ways. God is moving faster than before. The devil makes a move. Jesus comes faster and harder than the devil. Jesus is breaking through that film and becoming more real than ever before to save more and more. He wants to give us more encounters of him, y'all. A lot of us have knowledge. A lot of us have love. He wants to give us encounters of his power. It will steal us to the suffering. It will give us perspective that he is on the throne. For those that want it, we just got to press in. We can either sit back and just sort of like, I'm tired. Like, I'm just going to focus on my pain. Or we can just say, hey, I'm just going to put myself in a place to receive the Spirit of God. And I'm going to let Jesus turn my prison colony into a house of worship. It's time to press in. He's coming at us. He wants to give us that revelation. Come, Holy Spirit of God. As we worship right now, I want to encourage you to... Let the Lord just kind of convict you in your mind, in your heart about how you need to respond. If you need to come to the front to not be distracted and just worship God up here, come to the front. Someone might come and just pray over you. That let let them just bless you with the Holy Spirit. If you need to get on your knees, get on your knees. If you need to sit down, just close your eyes and receive it. Press into Jesus. Don't be casual, be genuine and real. Get rid of the lies of the devil that you are not worthy to worship. You are worthy to worship because of his blood, not because of anything you've done. He knows all your mistakes and your sins. You're here. He wants to pour that blood into you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and help us worship. Help us to join in with the worship that's been happening all day. Help us, God, open up that portal. Thin it out, Lord Jesus, that we could feel and experience the things of your glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Come.